Hey, welcome to Friendly Shadows. This week in the shadows, we have Dino DeMiro. Yeah, and I asked Dino a bunch of questions, and he sent us back some answers. And the first one I asked, uh, you know, I've known Dino a long time, and I asked him why he likes who he likes, because his influences are just pouring off of his sleeves, like Beefheart and Zappa. And so I asked him what he saw in the music that he likes. Thank you for having me, Kelly. Uh, My first musical influences were probably the Beatles, the Beach Boys, and the Monkees. But when I was a child, I didn't think of them as influences. They were just music. They were just there. And the radio at that time was not separated by genre. It was like they played everything. They played Beatles. They played Sinatra. They played schmaltzy, middle-of-the-road stuff. They played short instrumental pieces. And then you kind of had to wait until the beat picked up. Oh, it's the Beatles. And then you'd run and get your tape recorder going if you had one. Or you just turned it up really loud. I love the Beatles. I actually said that I like the Beach Boys better because even at that young age, I could tell. Let's see, I was about six or seven when those first albums came out. So even at that age, I could kind of tell that the Beach Boys were local because I could see they were on a beach just like the one that I went to. And it actually was pretty close to my beach. You know, it just looked like they were locals. looked like people that I saw walking around all the time. So I can, I like the Beach Boys better, but that didn't last long. And then the monkeys were cool. Love the monkeys from the TV show and everything. One of my first personal obsessions was Tiny Tim. And he started on Rona Martin's Laugh-In, and he played, you know, his little ukulele. He had long hair and played these very old-timey songs from, like, the 20s and 30s. So... You know, as you know from listening to Project 5, and if you've heard any of my other stuff, I like to throw in like a very old-timey song. I mean, I'm starting to do that. I don't know that I've always done it. Uh, I've gone through different phases. Like, I went through an Irish traditional phase, you know, a medieval phase. And so now I'm like trying to throw in, you know, at least one old-timey tune per CD if I can. And on Project 5, it was uh, lovely to look at, which was from um, Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers' movie. So you mentioned Frank Zappa and Captain Beefheart, and of course that's true, but not exactly the way you might think. Really, the main thing I played before music was tape recorder, because I was just obsessed with the idea. You know, I guess my uncle, who was a genius composer, and he also was an electronics whiz, He had a ton of uh, electronic equipment and reel-to-reel recorders in his little home bedroom studio there down the street. And it kind of reminded me, if you ever saw um, Chipmunks, it reminded me of David Seville's studio. It kind of like was the same thing. And he would let me make my own little radio shows once in a while. And I remember one time I wanted to go in and hear the tape, just thinking I could just turn it on. And so I pushed a button... And suddenly this horrible, like, horrible, huge sound just, and now I know it was feedback. 
I don't know why, I don't know how he had it wired that it was suddenly feedbacking everything, but so I ran out of there. I, you know, I just thought I could push a button and I would hear the tape I had made. So, and, you know, it kind of makes sense that my job later, my job became sound editor and sound designer because I had such a love for it from an earliest age. But anyway, even before I ever thought of music, I just wanted a tape recorder. I just wanted to record things. And I thought, you know, I could tape the theme songs from my favorite shows like Munsters and Get Smart, which I did. The tape recorder I got was three-inch reel-to-reel machine, so the tape didn't last very long. It was like seven minutes, I think, at the most. Then I did kind of create my own band. I, I called myself the Screamers, and I actually, you know, pretended there were other members. You know, I made little sheets to go with the tapes, of listing who the members were, and so it was basically noise collage. There was little to no real music in it. Then I think I played it, yeah, like my epic was going to be called The Four-Part Explosion. And I think it was two, going to be two little reels. And, you know, you have side one, side two, and then the next reel, side one, side two. So side four was going to be the explosion. So the whole side was going to be me, like, blowing into the microphone. One long explosion. That was the concept. I don't think I got that far. But I kind of told my cousin about it or played him some of it. My, uh, my cousin Doug who was a really huge influence on me. He got me smoking pot. He got me into Hendrix and Black Sabbath and Led Zeppelin and all those kind of more mainstream guys. But when he heard what I was doing, he said, if you like noise, you'll love the Mothers of Invention. At the time, the Mothers had about seven albums I know the album Weasels Ripped My Flesh hadn't come out yet because once I became a fan, that was one of the first ones I got. But the very first song I heard was Brown Shoes Don't Make It on Absolutely Free. And that sounded like a bunch of guys just doing crazy collage stuff just like I was doing. And later I realized there was a lot of really um, sophisticated orchestral stuff in there and but, you know, to a kid, it sounded just crazy and funny and nasty and, you know, it's cool. Then I found uh, Whirling It for the Money in a dollar bin. It was actually the censored version that Frank told them not to release. So I guess they just made it a cutout and put it out anyway. But, I mean, the the core of the album was still there. And that completely blew me away because it's the editing and the, the amount of stuff non-musical material that he would just throw in there that he considered the equal to the songs like phone calls and these sound sculptures and just these quick voice edits and and then there's no you look at the vinyl there's no separations it's just like one big blast like this is amazing so you know when i discovered that it's not like I heard Zappa and went, hey, that's what I should be doing. It's like I was already doing it just on a much smaller level. So it was kind of like Zappa was a kindred soul because, you know, I felt like we were both going the same way. And then Beefheart, because I knew he was one of Zappa's guys, I heard um, a couple of cuts or a cut on this Warner Brothers compilation called Looney Tunes and Merry Melodies. And that was kind of rough. It was just, it sounded, it really sounded literally like a bull in a china shop. So I was kind of like, my, my friend John immediately went, now that's crap. 
And I said, well, I don't know. You know, I didn't make a judgment right away. I was kind of like a little intrigued. And then I heard uh, on another compilation album, I heard the song Ella Guru from Trout Mask Replica. And that one, that totally sold me. So I got Trout Mask. Turned out none of the songs were as catchy and as easy to listen to as Ella Guru. But after a while, there was something about the jagged guitars that just touches something still inside me. And people hear my music and they immediately they go there and zap it. And I get that because it's it's just so ingrained. But really, I connect more with Beefheart. And I want to show that in my music. So I've really made an effort over the years to um, kind of put that on display. That answer makes a lot of sense after listening to Dino's music. Uh, I was uh, wondering after that... And I wanted to ask him if his job has literally changed or sharpened the way he listened to his music. Um, Yeah, I mean, I'm interested to hear that too. And what other things have influenced his music besides music? Your question reminds me of people that my whole career have always asked, can you still enjoy a movie? You know, if you know so much about how they're made, can you enjoy them if they have bad sound? And the answer for me is that if a movie works, the sound doesn't really matter. If it's, if it works as a story and the acting and everything, sound doesn't matter. I mean, I may want the would have preferred the sound to be better on the flip side. If a movie doesn't work, it can have, awesome sound and that won't save the movie that won't make it a good movie i may enjoy listening to the sound and i have had a couple of movies like that but if the movie's not working sound won't save it all of us in sound editorial kind of know that and makes us sad but because everybody works on bad movies a lot of them and i've been really lucky that i've worked on so many good movies so for albums moving this over to music If an album has a really good inspiration or idea or concept, it can have a crappy mix or crappy recording and still work for me. It can still, you know, stand on its own merits. And if an album is totally slick but has no heart or soul, I'm not going to like that at all. I'll just take that off. That does nothing for me. And that's another reason why I like reviewing because it's weird that no two albums ever sound exactly the same. They may have similar elements, but everybody uses different tools or different approaches, and they all come out sounding differently. And then there's this whole thing of uh, a lot of the mixers, you know, you know, their feeling is you kind of have to be as slick and professional as possible if you want listeners, because only other musicians can handle an album that kind of sounds like a demo or is kind of rough or not mixed well, and... I really don't agree with that because um, I do know people that like albums that are... I mean, we went through this whole period in the 80s and early 90s with uh, some of the indie labels like SST, you know, these do-it-yourself bands. And, you know, their first or second albums would be rough a lot of times, but they're still classics. They're They're still great. It's like I don't listen to them and go, oh, that's not mixed that well, so I can't listen to it. 
So for me, my own sound quality has gone up over the years just because I was kind of late to digital recording. It was all four track before that. And I know my sound quality and my mixing could be better. But at a certain point, I, I just have to make a choice that, you know, what are you? Are you somebody that expects to be a famous artist? Or are you the do-it-yourself artist that you kind of always have been? I worked with a uh, mixer named Tom, who was a very nice guy. If you want to see our work together, you put on the um, DVD of the Inspector Gadget movie, and the whole opening credits is just my sound effects and his mixing. And it turned out really well. So we worked together really well in it. But while we were doing that, he was telling me about having mixed Goodwill Hunting, which featured a lot of songs from Elliot Smith's first three CDs. And, you know, Elliot at the time recorded on a four-track cassette recorder. So, you know, Tom mixed the movie, so he he clearly knew kind of the roughly the sound of those. I mean, not roughly. I mean, he heard them on huge speakers. But he told me he went and bought those three CDs, and he said, I had to take them all back. And I said, why, Tom? And he said, sounded too shitty. So, you know, Elliot Smith, I don't think it's hyperbole to say he's one of our best recent songwriters ever. I mean, sure, his his CDs got better. The next few were done in studios and sounded much better. But, I mean, there were great songs on those CDs. And But for this mixer, it was all about the sound quality. That's the only thing that mattered to him. I worked with a lot of great mixers. Um, I think some of them are my friends. But, you know, it only takes a couple to, like, completely piss you off. So during that whole period, I was making my own music the whole time. And doing my own music and mixing it myself and mastering, you know, whatever I did, that was my way of not having to answer to those guys. Mixers are the sound gods of Hollywood. And they look at you funny and your whole day is ruined. You have to take down your work and fix it and do whatever they want. And they may be right or it may just be their opinion, but it doesn't matter. It's like they're the gods and if they don't like something, you have to fix it. There was another mixer who came over from Germany, ten, about 10 years younger than me. I love water sounds. I love editing water. I love hearing it, you know, ocean, rain, water in any form, splashing, swimming pools. I love cutting water sounds. So there was a scene of a guy in some ocean waves. I wasn't there, but I heard the story. He plays my tracks and he says, I'm a surfer. I know what waves sound like. These don't sound like waves. And, you know, excuse the fuck out of me. I've been going in those waves since before you were fucking born and before you were even out here. And you're telling me I don't know what waves sound like? So what it turned out to be was that I had cut three tracks, you know, with different tonalities. And the third track that needed to make the whole sequence work, he didn't have it up. So when he finally lifted that fader, there it was. And it was right. But I mean, that was the first thing he thought to say was that I don't know what ocean waves sound like. So, I mean, that's, you know, that's why I kind of don't want to deal with mixers at this point. I was kind of had enough. The ethos that I came up with in the 80s is uh, do things as cheaply as possible and then get maximum use and effectiveness out of what you do have. 
Man, he is cracking me up on this one. I totally get working with mixers. I mean, even when you work with really nice mixers, it's just you aren't always on the same page with your song. So, Isn't that the truth? So, yeah, I uh, was really into the parts about him talking about his job, and I asked him more about that, and he was happy to provide some answers. So I mentioned a little about my job. Um my title was motion picture and TV sound editor and designer. So, you know, for years we were all just sound editors and then sound designer became this hip thing that you call yourself or someone calls you in my work. I've cut dialogue. I've cut effects as part of my effects work. I cut Foley, which pretty much everybody knows those guys that dance around in front of the screen that do the footsteps and make do little prop sounds in front of the screen. So that's Foley. And they get it as close as they can, but when you get Foley tracks, you pretty much have to edit them. It's not like, oh, here's the Foley. You know, you have to go through, like, their sound effects and by the frame, get them in sync with the picture. I've done a tiny bit of music editing, but really my music thing and my work thing have always been separate. And when I began my career... The equipment that I used was like, if Charlie Chaplin had walked in the room, he would have known what to do with it. Hollywood, very slow to change. So that's what I started with, was like sound film, like 35 millimeter film, but it actually had uh, oxide on it, like tape recorder strip on it. And that's what you edited. Did that for years, and then thanks to Mr. George Lucas who got tired of dealing with film and didn't like, you know, was tired of editing on film and doing sound on film. He got the whole industry to change to digital. And I didn't realize until recently when I saw this documentary on ILM that he's the one that kicked the industry's ass into changing over. And all those ILM people who did puppets and physical effects, they all had to go digital in the sound world, we all had to move on to PCs and Macs. And it wasn't that difficult a transition, but it was definitely a transition. And of course, now I would never go back. I wouldn't go back for music. I wouldn't go back for work. And as far as music, you know, I used to, I love tape recorders. As I said, I love reel-to-reel machines. I had a four-track TAC that was huge, that was heavy. I can't even lift it now. And um, I loved recording on that, but I wouldn't do that now. I, I wouldn't know what to do. As far as work credits, if you want to know about that, um, my favorite ones are like Home Alone 1 and 2. But in Home Alone, I did a lot of work, but I did all of the trap scenes. Anytime Kevin is attacking the two guys, that's my stuff. Did a few films with Cameron Crowe. That was exciting because I always used to read him in Rolling Stone growing up. Ridley Scott, I was a huge fan, and I kind of came in right when his career had a resurgence because the first film we did for him was Gladiator, and he really hadn't had a big hit for a while. So that started a whole string of hits for him. And then ultimately, I got to have a credit on the Blade Runner director's cut, which is really special. And then I worked on James Bond's Skyfall, which won an Oscar for Best Sound, and they thanked me from the stage. That was a big moment. A lot of the Jackass movies, you would be surprised, has added sound effects. 
And then I ended my career doing this, the cable series Narcos, which was just crazy busy, crazy tons of sounds in that. But to me, every episode was like putting out a new album. I got as excited about that because unlike the rest of my career, I really didn't have to collaborate with more than really my supervisor. And he would add a few things and music was different and dialogue was different. But as far as everything else, all the backgrounds, all the sound effects, that was all me. That was great. That was my career. And that ended and I went right back into full-time music. Wow, you know, if you're like me and you hear some of those movies and directors, you get a little starstruck, you know, you can't help it. Yeah, I I agree. Listening to that answer, I just thought, whoo, that is very impressive. And now uh, Dino does work as a music reviewer. I think our next question is going to just address how that has changed his music. Okay, my job as a music reviewer hasn't changed the music I make, but I think I take a closer look at it while I'm doing it. And I kind of imagine if I were reviewing it myself, what would I be saying? So the site that I review for just changed its name. It's now called Pitch Perfect. Their whole angle is to encourage indie musicians. They want to encourage people. They won't accept an album unless they think it's at least a good album because they don't want negative reviews on there. So if your album is on there, it's good. That's the starting point. And then how good is it? Is it really good? Is it awesome? What is it? They do encourage you to be to provide constructive criticism, which I certainly do. Before that, in the 80s, I reviewed indie cassettes for Option Magazine. And they, they said, if a tape's bad, just say it. So once in a while, I would kind of trash a tape. But, you know, I could never forget that that was a real person who made that, who thinks it's good, who is looking forward to the review. So, it you know... Ultimately, I never came down that hard on people. And it's funny because if I would make a comment that the artist didn't like, they would sometimes write me a letter and say, why did you say this? And then I would answer. And then a lot of times we'd become friends and would trade music. So that was kind of fun. to that answer you know being a music reviewer has to be really hard I mean of course they don't want to put anyone down but at the same time their job is to let consumers know like what they're in for yeah and you know I've done reviews myself and it it is a tricky situation Uh, but you learn to you learn to get a rhythm and a style to it one of the things 
that I had to ask Dino was, what were the sounds like growing up in California? Okay, so I already mentioned that um, I grew up with the Beach Boys and the Beatles. But growing up in California, it's corny to say this, but you know, I really remember music as being a summertime thing. I remember the transistor radios and the car radios. You know, you see a movie about California then, that's really what it was like. So if you take a hit song like Summer in the City, that's totally evocative for how it felt growing up. You know, and there was music all year round, but that's when I would really feel it because you'd be out in the beach and out in the streets and you would hear the music coming from the radios all over the place. And of course you had, a lot of times you had your own little transistor radio or your radio at home or even a little crystal radio, a little like get smart pen radio. I had that. That was really fun. The big hits on the radio and the one-hit wonders, the garage bands, that those were sounds I was hearing. And as I mentioned, if you had a tape recorder, like my dad taught at a high school, and for a short time he brought home a reel-to-reel tape recorder. So my sisters taped a bunch of songs off the radio, and I actually have that tape now, and it's it's fun to hear. Although it's a little skewed because they taped the songs they liked. But then my parents also taped a couple, too. So I kind of got a cross-reference of what it was like then. You know, that's just as I suspected. Uh, I, In my own case with my writing, uh, where I grew up has a definite impact on the sound that comes out. Right, yeah. Um, one of the things we really love from Dino is Project 5. And uh, I wanted to find out more about that. Right. And what I really love is that some of the songs are fun, some are touching, and, you know, we just want more info about how it was recording that. Project 5 was a temporary title because I had roughly five projects in the pipeline. Actually turned out to be number four because I skipped one, but okay. You know, you you have a temporary title and you get used to it. And it it really has no overriding concept, except I have the picture of the train on the front, which was a big boy locomotive that I used to visit with my son at the county fair. It was just parked on the lot there, and you would just climb on it or look at it or whatever. And, And it's funny, they were able to restore it because it was so hot at the fairgrounds that somehow the heat kept the train from from getting rusty or rotting out or whatever it's like the heat kept it good and so they took that locomotive totally restored it and that was its like maiden voyage so i was sure to go out there and take pictures of it and then there's a little audio at the end of the cd from that same moment but you know roughly the you know, my albums I try to either react against the one that came before or add to the concept of the one that came before, go to the next level. So that one came after the double album called Stop Gap Sam's Last Stand, which was like all mostly guitar solos. That was also a COVID project. And I, because I was on lockdown, I bought this new Ibanez whammy guitar because I'd never really played whammy before. So Project 5 was like, okay, I did this guitar solo album. Now it's time to go back and do a song-oriented album. And it starts out with a single guy with a high income. And 
this continues something I started, which was to re-record one older song from my catalog on every new album. Because I think I did it once, and I noticed that even my closest friends who should know, I mean, not should, but you kind of might think they might remember these songs, not even they recognize these songs. And I'm like, wow, you know, I think they're good songs, but these early songs were done, you know, in a more primitive manner. Like the original of this song had the drums were this plain rap Moog synthesizer that I saw. I kind of just made the keys sound like a snare and a cymbal like. So I thought, well, it'd be great to do this song with real drums and lay the guitars out differently. And so you mentioned the album is touching in places. You might be referring to the broken leg song. That was about my daughter. She was five when that happened. She's like 23 now. I think, you know, a lot of my demos are really old. So by the time I do the songs, the inspiration is was a while back. So it could have been a lot closer to when this happened that I wrote that song. But I always wanted to do it. So that ended up second song. South Bay Wine Bar was an unusual song because... It's mostly made up. It's not based on anything real. The original lyrics were because it was, I I had a girlfriend who had friends who did phone sex, and I think one was even a prostitute. And so I would hear these stories from the wild side from her. And so I wrote this song called South Bay Brothel, where I kind of imagine one of these friends of hers and what it was like for them. But, you know, I love the music of it. I thought it was one of my, uh, you know, more commercial sounding songs. And I thought, well, I don't want to sing about a brothel. Well, it's kind of weird. So I completely changed the lyrics and the meaning. And that's unusual for me, but it's something I'm starting to do more because a lot of times I'll have a song and the subject matter won't interest me anymore, but I'll go, just write new lyrics. Who cares? You know? And so that's kind of fun because I've been able to salvage some songs. So, you know, a wine bar is a little closer to my experience. You know, I go to wine bars with Sharon. And actually, the middle section in that song is about Sharon, because I talk about her hair, long, straight, and sweet. I love my wife's hair. What color bra? Uh, Breast Cancer Awareness Week. Sharon would march during Breast Cancer Awareness Week and wear the special colored bra. I think it was pink. (laughs) I don't even remember. Um, so a little of that song is real, but most of it's just made up. And then like Saint Not So Angry is a, like a very low key parody of Metallica doing Saint Anger. I like Metallica. I like Saint Anger. I don't have like this visceral love of Metallica, but I, I find it interesting how they put their songs together and the riffs. And then the latter half of the album is like shorter instrumentals that kind of group together. They kind of the same feel. So I kind of group those together. And then I end with, at least on the Bandcamp version and the CD version, I end with The Ballad of Heisenberg, which was from Breaking Bad. You know, I love Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul. Huge fan. And in the middle of the Breaking Bad series, here's this video in Spanish, in Spanish, of uh, a song about Heisenberg. And the graphics are hilarious because they have a guy standing in for Walter White and um, they show him dead at the end. And so I thought, 
how hip would it be to to do a cover version of that um but it turned out to be really hard because um those guitars like you know, I could only go a little at a time on those da da dun 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 Those guitar melodies are tricky as hell. But, you know, partly because of Breaking Bad, partly because I really promoted this one, I really would constantly do tweets and hashtag Breaking Bad. And um, this became my biggest hit. It, it's over 20,000 Spotify plays. I'm not even, don't even know what the other... Um, like Apple or those guys. I have no idea. YouTube. I have no idea what the numbers are over there. I never check. I only check Spotify and occasionally Bandcamp, but it's a huge hit. And so that was fun. And it kind of makes me feel like I should, well, actually this has been my pattern to do, try to do an unusual cover version in every album. But this is the first one to really catch on. I recently released Macarena, which was an older track. That's not really catching on. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. thing i like to ask writers is how many songs do you write versus how many do you let us hear okay so for many years and there were a lot of reasons initially because my first wife like did everything in her power to stop me from doing music i couldn't record then i got busy at work then i ended up moving a lot and um so i just hit a lot of patches where i literally could not make albums and it, it killed me because i love making albums it was heartbreaking but in order to do something i just kept recording demos one after another and for years i had a nice recording walkman at work and i would put in a hundred minute chrome cassette and i had a uh, my stratocaster at work so Anytime I thought of an idea or felt like making up an idea, I would pick up the guitar, turn on the recorder, and record. And when I would hit the end of side two, I would immediately put it in my dubbing deck and make a one-to-one copy so that there was a backup copy in case that one got... Because, you know, these were demos. These were kind of precious, one-of-a-kind things. And before I did this, I tried to do a rough count of how many demos I have on cassette, and it, it roughly... I have 2,000 minutes or 32 hours. So that's why um, I'm still going through these demos and still making albums out of them. And it's funny because the upcoming double album, there's a more than one song where I sing about my girlfriend, who's now my wife and has been my wife for 12 years. So because i use so many of these demos i've you know and they're based on guitar i'm like okay my stuff's starting to sound too guitar centered 
I need to, you know, and the way it's written, I have to change that up. So the next album is going to be maybe a double based on no live drums. Well, a couple of live drums from an, from a drummer that I met. But everything else will be drum machines or drum loops or samples that I steal off of CDs. And then I'm going to... As a writer, too, I have a bunch of demos that uh, no one will ever hear until I get around to them someday. <laughs> I know. Going back through the demos is something that is always fun to do. Um, I, I think our next question is just more about what what are some things that Dino, you know, feels grabbed by whenever he listens to a song? Okay, for songs, I like hooks, I like interesting melodies, and I like surprises in music. But if it's a full album, I'll be a lot more open to many different kinds of songs or ways of doing songs as opposed to just singles. Because albums, I really like the feeling of a concept or an arc or at least a collection of things that are either very consistent or totally inconsistent. I love Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness by Smashing Pumpkins because it's a very long double CD. He was really inspired to try a lot of different things in there. I love Double Nickels on the Dime by Minutemen. That's more consistency. Trout Mask Replicas, more consistency. Uncle Meat by Zappa is inconsistent, but, you know, has certain uniform sounds that he returns to throughout that album. Finally, to the question about the creation process. I'll start with these little demos that used to be recorded on a Walkman, but now, since I realized my iPhone has voice memo and I got tired of cassettes, so I'll record my demos on voice memo now on the iPhone. And, you know, it's got surprisingly good sound quality, even even the crappy little mic that's on the phone. But anyway, those demos off of there what's nice is that they're digital and they're clean there's no machine noise and 
you know, they'll hold sync. It's not like a cassette that like, you know, when you copy it, it's going, you know, this, this, the speed would always be a tiny bit of fluctuation in the speed. So the digital recording on a uh, iPhone is just solid. So those are great demos. So a lot of times I'll think of a line and I'll sing the line. If I have the guitar out and I get an idea and I'm playing and I get an idea for riff, I'll record that. If I'm plugged into the amp and I get some cool sounds, I'll record that. You asked me what comes quickly in um, creation process. I guess happy accidents, like if a phone rings in the background, I'll leave that in sometimes because sometimes it fits. One time I was doing a collaborative song for Don Campo and there was a construction crew destroying my bathroom in the next room. And it's funny because I love the sound of that and I left it in. It was it was while I was doing vocals, I think, and you could hear them in the background oh, calling to each other and things crashing. And um, what's funny, though, is if I hear that track, I guess because once all the instruments went in there, you can't tell it's there. But I, I like to think it you know, it, it just adds some flavor that otherwise wouldn't be there. So I don't know if that's a good answer, but that's, that's what comes quickly is like, Oh, I made an accident, you know, uh, or I'll play, I'll play a wrong chord. Like there was a song, the snout burger finale, where I literally played the overdub one chord down from what it should have been. And it, it was just this jarring, very cool sound with the two guitars, just one chord off. So I kept that. And I'll do that a lot. I'll do that. You know, I love accidents like that. I love hearing about the creative process of other musicians, especially ones I admire as much as Dino. Um, what I'd like to know now is, is he playing shows, you know, um, Maybe if he's not, does he want to play again? You know, what are some plans going forward with his music career? So the only time I played live, and I'm not proud of this because I did like playing live, but I was in, you know, high school bands. And one of the high school bands, my bass player ended up working with uh, Dave Mustaine from Megadeth. Then I was in, right after high school, I was in a band that played dances at schools. But that was a weird time because it was like 75, 76, and disco existed, but not that many people really use that word yet. People like soul music, they like dance music, and the band I was in played very traditional rock, kind of Eagles, Joe Walsh, uh, some Hendrix, you know, it was just rock. You know, we played a girls convent and they, the second time we played there, it was a prom and they didn't like us that much the first time, but the second time the kids are out there in their nice clothes and everything and their corsages and, and they would like stop and look at us like, what are you guys playing? And Oh, so we packed up and then the headlining band was Van Halen who were about a year away from being signed and Eddie hadn't even learned his tapping trick yet, but Van Halen came on and they were already rock stars and they just blew, blew us off the stage. And the kids not only did not like Van Halen, they hated them and they all, I'll never forget how this, they all left the auditorium, got in their cars and drove away. 
Suddenly, every car, they all started, all drove away. So my drummer and I went back in, and there's Van Halen going, wow, we got a great house here tonight, wow. So we just sat down in front of him on the floor and took the whole show in ourselves. And there was really maybe three or four other people in the auditorium. So it was just for us. So anyway, that's a little story about my band years. For my own music, I've only played like one song, one small show. I played a song at my first wedding for my wife, the one that ended up hating my music and trying to stop me from doing it. And so, no, not really. I've I've had little ideas of getting together with my best friend and doing a show. But I, I really don't think it's in the cards. Man, uh, I love the stories from this guy. Just like, oh, Van Halen was there, no big. I mean, <laughs> wow. Intense. Okay. Uh, and our last question, uh, we want to know where we can find him, where he wants us to find him. You know, that's what he's going to say next. I really like Bandcamp a lot. I think it's a great... It's kind of like what people said Facebook was going to be like. You know, this great free thing and you can post things and it's free and great. And and uh, we all know what happened to Facebook. Bandcamp is where you can find the most complete versions of my music and you can download or you can um, purchase CDs from there. Then, you know, I'm also on Spotify and Apple and YouTube and all those other ones. And the only reason I started doing that was because I was trying to get on these playlists, you know, and they're like, well, are you on Spotify? You know, and it was this black mark that you weren't on Spotify. So a lot of people have a problem with Spotify. I don't love Spotify, but... A lot of people are there, so for now, I'm fine being there. It's kind of fun to be there. But yeah, I would say you can find me anywhere. I don't have my own personalized website right now, um, but I consider Bandcamp kind of to be my website. Excellent. You know, before we could let Dino go, I had one last question. I wanted to ask him about Twitter and he posts a lot of interesting stories and gives credit to his wife for various sneaky roles in the album making process and I wanted him to tell us about that and ask if he would like to thank anyone uh, for their participation in his music my second wife Sharon has incredibly supportive and I, I just can't tell you how good that feels. All the time that I wasn't recording, she kept saying, don't you want to do music? And I said, honey, work is so complicated. Let me just finish my career at work, and then, then I'll go to music. And then she said, when I did, she said, how much money do you need for your Pro Tools? Yes, you can put out a CD. Yes, we have the money. So... I'm so thankful for her support. And, you know, and that's why I write so many songs about her, because it's just so easy. So creatively, Sharon has always been there. And then my home taping friends, and I, I just thought of this, it's, I have so many. But really, Don Campo is considered the godfather of 
at least home taping network. Don Campo is really the king of networking and bringing people together and, and making music available and telling people about stuff and plus his own huge, huge catalog of music. So without Don, I don't know where I'd be right now because he has been so supportive. And then, you know, I can't name everybody, but all the people that um, who trade music with me, who would give me little reviews and, you know, we'd write letters and, and just that support network has been so important. And then, you know, in recent couple of years, all my Twitter friends, which are kind of a new generation away from the home taping network that I had. I mean, there's a little bit of crossover, but I've met so many new people on Twitter. And, you know, there is so much music on Twitter, and I get new follow requests every day. And and then with every new follow, it seems like there's three artists that appear on that person's, at least three. So nobody's going to hear all that music. Nobody's going to be able to. But, you know, I try to do what I can. If something's interesting, I try to play it. And I know that the people I follow and follow me have the same problem. There's just too much. But I do appreciate if anyone plays a single or downloads something or just says or even retweets something. That all means quite a bit. Wow, what a great interview. I want to thank Dino for all the work he did in providing us some of these answers. Yeah, I mean, I came into this interview really not knowing as much as I know now for sure, but I I really also now think he is such a sweetheart. I mean, very, what a neat guy. The Friendly Shadows would like to thank Dina for all his wonderful answers and visiting with us. And now we have a new segment on the show that correlates with a segment on the blog called Mikey's Corner. And Mikey J from Twitter is going to tell us about his favorite indie music on his release radar this week. Thank you, Mikey. Good evening everybody. It is Friday night down here in Australia and that can mean only one thing for all those people who follow me on Twitter and that is my updated Spotify release radar and this evening we're going to try something a little bit new. Uh, My good mate Kelly Kintner from the Friendly Shadows, from the Kintners, has asked if I might like to put my weekly indie music reviews that I do on Twitter uh, into a little bit of a podcast. So we're going to try that this evening. Uh, I've got a few songs that I'm going to pick out from my reviews that I've just finished up on Twitter um, and give a bit, of, bit, more, bit more of a shout out, a bit more of a, an explanation perhaps. Let's get stuck into it. The first one is one that I cannot not talk about. Um, A great band out of the UK, uh, The Future Us, 
someone that I really, really enjoy every time a new song comes out. Uh, and this one this week, Dirty Dog, is of no exception. It is a great, great track. Uh, these boys just continue to put out good old-fashioned rock songs, um, and this one is that as well. There are awesome, awesome dirty guitars. Byplay is brilliant between the two of them. Uh, progressions and riffs, amazing. Um, it's got a ripping bass line, and the harmonies and vocal lines are just sublime. Um if you're a fan of a guitar solo, uh, if anyone of and if anyone's heard my music, you know that I definitely am. This one has a brilliant one to finish it off. So wherever you stream, get your ears around Dirty Dog. It is fantastic. The next song I want to have a little chat about today is someone who I've been hearing more and more of uh, recently. Um, he's been in my release radar pretty regularly over the last, let's say, month or two. Um, and someone who I've just been really, really enjoying what he's putting out. Um, and that is Jerry Stanek. Um, he's got his really great knack of producing... Uh, old time rock and roll songs. Um, in 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 the past, they've been very acoustic based. Uh, this new one this week still has that element to it, um, but there's an added added bonus this week of some really cool um, elect lead electric flourishes. Slightly fuzzed, but just really really cool. Um, in my in my Twitter review, um, I, I touched on the uh, the count-in that he does. Um, and it's something that, as musicians, we probably all do when we are recording. I know, you know, I record through through things like GarageBand and Logic and you push record and it gives you, gives you that click count-in. Um, but Jerry's done a vocal count-in that really harked back, um, for me, to Taxman um, by the Beatles. Um, it was it was it was a bit laconic. It was it had a bit of a bit of a dirty edge to it, um, but it really set the song up really really nicely. Um, what was really cool about this one as well was the bass line. More than just a you know a stodgy following the 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 root chord line, it, it, it had a roll to it, and it was it was really really deep and broad bass sound um which was which was really really cool um as with all of jerry's songs the the vocal line um was super melodic um but even better this time around were some really really cool harmonies not just in the chorus but throughout elements of of the verses um as well uh, so this track every day um really got me feeling really good. Um, I'm a massive Beatles fan and it certainly had that 60s pop rock, bubblegum rock, you know, Beatles, uh, easy beats, that sort of sort of feel to it. Um, just puts me in a good mood. The next track I want to have a chat about is from someone who um, just amazes me with with everything that they do. Um, Orange G is, I think, 
um, I'll, I'll, I'll get you know a little bit hyperbolic here. He, he's a god of indie indie music on Twitter. Um, everyone seems to know him. Everyone seems to enjoy his music. Um, he's collabed with a huge range of people. Um, he has a great little uh, little side project gig going at the moment with the Round Lakes with uh, with John Mitchie and uh, and Chris James Willows which uh, is producing some amazing music in their own right um, but Orange G is there's just something about him that's that's different and cool um, so I want to have a chat about what 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 he's done tonight um, so the song that we have from him on my release radar this fine Friday um, is a song called a song about kung fu um, and you see a title like that and and you immediately do get sucked in anyway because not many people write songs about kung fu um, you know, really the only one that springs to mind is Kung Fu Fighting and, and this is not like that at all um, in any way, shape or form. What can you say about Orange G? I mean, he's plays pretty much every instrument under the sun um, on a regular basis. Uh, this one is acoustic guitar um, based. It's got some great... Byplay between a couple of different acoustic guitar lines, um, and, you know, a really good solid progression along with some other little riffage going on. Um, a really simple bass uh, element to it that's just sort of following along with the with the root notes, um, and a really cool sort of bluesy, rocky electric guitar lead flourish line. Um, really, really puts a. a a different mood to to some of Orange's other tracks, more folksy folksy tracks. I think I think the best thing about Orange is actually his voice. Um, and while you know he might not have the most classical and stereotypical uh, vocal lines, um, there's something about his voice that's just just cool it's it it oozes it oozes toughness it oozes sassiness it oozes uh it, it, it oozes storytelling it's reminiscent of, of 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 a bob dylan but it's much 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 more melodic um it's got this lazy laconic feel to it that just grooves along with the music that he's playing um, and in this particular this particular song there's a really nice bit of edge to it a little bit of gravel in the throat maybe you know a, a night on the whiskey and the cigars has put that real edge to the vocals in in this particular one um, and no orange g song would be an orange g song without his trademark bluesy folky harmonica um, and that comes in towards the end of this track as well um, but the coolest thing about this one is actually just the lyrics they're they're really fun there's a lot of uh, comparisons between different people and different situations and what he'd do to them if he knew kung fu and it's it's just a really fun laid back fun song that's what I can say about it. It's a really, really fun song. 
we're staying in the the more folky uh, element of my release radar um, from this evening. Um, and it's someone who has just released a new uh, EP today. Um, and he's another of one of the coolest cats going around. Um, you look at his, his stuff on Instagram and he, he lives near a beach. Um, now, you know, it's not an Australian beach, but it's, it's, it's a, a UK beach and, and it's, he, he dresses like an old timey sailor with, with big duffel coats. And he's got this majestic beard. Um, and he's another that, that plays a whole range of instruments, um, really, really, really well. Um, and is a superb lyricist, um, just a superb lyricist. I wish I could be half the lyricist that 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 he is. Uh, the song we've got tonight is Behaviours, um, and it's just gorgeous. Um, his acoustic guitar work um, is phenomenal. Uh, Finger-picking progressions and riffs and just beautiful choices of which strings and combinations of notes that he plays uh, at any given time just uh, are really beautiful um, and and really provide a great basis for his 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 vocals um, the best part about this particular song though is the orchestra elements um, and this is something that that he hasn't done all that much of, if any, before. Um, and, and this track has a really great uh, middle eight or bridge or whatever it is that you want to call that section of the song where the vocals and the guitar really just cut out, and the vocals in particular. Um, and we have this orchestral element that uh, just, it's just majestic. It lifts you up. Um, it's It's got this really regal feel to it but really beautiful and and serene at the same time and then that drops out again and you come back in with his acoustic guitar and his voice um you know it's it's got that sort of style of a day in the life but it's a lot more serene it's a lot more flowing it's not it's not that real contrasted band orchestra band element it's it's Ben and his guitar and his voice with some really beautiful orchestral arrangements then it's full orchestral and it's and it's it takes you away it it makes you drift off it's beautiful and then he comes back in and finishes the song um really really sweetly there's there's a depth to this composition that we probably haven't seen in this way from Ben before um, and I'm really, really, really looking forward to listening to the rest of the album if this particular track is anything to go by. I'm going to talk about one more track this evening, um, and this is from an artist who's who's a little bit special to me. Uh, some of you know I spent a great deal of my life living in China. Um, so anyone who has had such a similar experience, I, I feel a bit of a, a you know, connect with and a bit of kinship with. Um, and Bloca Cola Zero uh, is 
living that life now. He's in Hangzhou in China. Um, and man, does he create some awesome, awesome music. Uh, the track this evening is My Little Crony. Um, and this is just pure bloke cola um, it's I describe him as retro dream pop um, I think that's the best way to, to describe him he's it's a, it's a little bit lo-fi it's a little bit there's a, there's some hip-hop elements in there there's some there's some dance elements there's some funk there's some there's it's just awesome is, is what it is uh, this particular track has really cool uh, dreamy guitar lines they're 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 not chords and progressions, but but little lines, little riffs, um, clean guitar lines. Maybe a little bit of maybe a little bit of chorus, a little bit of reverb. Sounds like that. Just really, really f- makes you float around. Uh, his bass lines always, always get you in the groove. They're they're funky. They're moving. They they just provide a real, real groove to the undertone of of his 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 uh his tracks um and and his drums um nothing you know over the top nothing overtly complex but always grooves that really fit the song beautifully um there there's almost like a, a an analog tape uh sound to them um just really really great groovy bass drums uh bass and drums and this particular song has some really cool keyboard flourishes that are again like those guitar lines just really really lift you up really take you out into into the world of that that he creates um with 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 his music um he has this really great knack of of beautifully produced vocals as well um not just a single line but always layered multiple different harmonies and 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 contrasting high pitches and low pitches and um the the lyrics are just so darn creative um it, it makes me really really jealous um and he and he puts this awesome amount of reverb on it that again just takes you away it it it's music that that just really makes you feel good all the time. Um, so check out my little crony from Bloca Cola Zero. Thanks, Mikey J. Uh, if you want to find out more about Mikey's picks, just check out the vlog site, uh, thefriendlyshadows.com. And thanks, Dino, also for all that you sent to us we'll have a little bit of information about him on the blog as well until next time this has been friendly shadows Mm -hmm.